some people is asking how can we make better forecasts right in the middle of this uncertainty and i don't think that this is a black swan event and it's going to be very difficult if not impossible to predict this thing data cannot make magic and i think that this is where the human touch comes in place i'm a advocate of demis hasabi's take on human plus ai are much better than ai alone Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Alberto Ray Villaverde, the Chief Data Officer at Just Eat, Britain's leading online food order and delivery service. He is a pricing and revenue management professional with extensive experience within the data science field, particularly on BI and advanced analytics, data mining, machine learning techniques, and scenario modeling. On this interview, Alberto and Cindy discuss how machine learning allows data to speak for itself, why the real value of artificial intelligence requires the guiding hand of a human, three components crucial to the success of data products and services, adjusting business practices and expectations during pandemics and economic downturns, how Ray Kurzweil and Demis Hassabi have influenced Alberto's overall vision and work ethic, the talent gap versus the imagination gap in the data industry from a European perspective, and much more. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Today, I'm excited to introduce Alberto Ray Villaverde, Chief Data Officer from Just Eat. Alberto, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, happy to be here and uh, be able to talk to you. Me too. So I understand it's a sunny day in beautiful northern England. Yeah, it's amazing. 28 degrees Celsius right now, uh, which is a bit unbelievable, but I'm not going to be the person to complain about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, most of my family is from northern England where it rains all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, I come from um, uh, the northwest of Spain. And there, what you have is a lot of rain. My wife said that I come from the fake Spain uh, because it's cloudy and rainy all the time. So for me, it's perfectly fine if, if there's a bit of cloud and rain. I'm perfectly adapted by birth to, to live in UK, to be honest. Oh, good, good. Oh, fake Spain. That's a bit harsh. I'm yeah. picturing Marbella along the coast. Beautiful. It doesn't look like that. It's along the coast, but it's cloudy and rainy usually. So Alberto, what a time for a new job. You've been at Just Eat for a year now and business busy as ever in COVID. Tell us what's happening. Well, it happens that we have been caught by this unprecedented event like any other company on the whole planet, I guess. As an industry, we, we can't complain. We are not in a business that as airlines or hotels or hospitality has been completely paralyzed. We are still trading and um, what we are in a situation in which we can serve our customers when they most need it, because we can take food to their homes without them having to, to break their uh, lockdown uh, measures. So it's not a bad place to be compared with what is the situation uh, that you see around. So yeah, we are lucky in that sense, right? 
Yeah, lucky. And more important as people prefer to, well, have no choice, either they're cooking or they're ordering online. And I was pretty impressed by Just Eat saying, we will uh, reduce our margins to enable our restaurants to better reach more people. Yeah, well, definitely, we, we wouldn't be here with our restaurants, uh, with our, uh, our restaurant partners and uh, without our customers. Uh, that measure that you are talking about, it was taken quite early on the first few weeks. There was a real shock to the industry. There was as well a shock to our customers, I have to say. So initially, people didn't know how to react, right? They thought that, well, this might be a week, this might be two weeks. What we have seen is that people, um, as they cook more and more at home, they find as well more excuses to actually, okay, let's do takeaway today. And, and that is as well potential source of income for those restaurants that are not going to see the users uh, sit-ins. And uh, that's great to hear that we can help them in that way. But yeah, I'm just very mindful that the hospitality industry is, uh, this is not going to be just enough to, to help them, right? We need, we still need to kind of go back to normality and we need the restaurants be open and, and have their usual operations. We do. We do. We want those pubs opening too. Yeah. So tell us what we're eating more of. Is it pizza or Indian food? Well, it varies a lot by country now that we are getting close to summer. So for example, today, 28 degrees, I'll, I'll like to kind of check what were the stats tomorrow, but people definitely is quite influenced by weather changes and uh, things like that. We haven't seen massive changes in, uh, in your usual consumption patterns. There is a lot of restaurant chains that have closed, big one brands that, that provide burgers and, and the like, and, and um, they have closed their operations. So obviously you see less of those. But for, for the rest, there is a lot of uh, restaurants that are still operating and, and we see basically the same consumption of your Indian, your pizza, your Chinese things haven't, haven't changed much. Thank you. So you've had a long career leveraging data and only recently, a year ago, went to Just Eat. Tell us how you started with data, going back to EasyJet, really. It started a bit earlier than that. I have 17 years of experience in the aviation industry. And, and after those 17 years, I joined Just Eat. Before EasyJet, I had a bit of, um, I was working in other airlines, airports. Uh, my background uh, from a degree perspective is in air transport. And then I have a second one, which I started and never finished in economics. I, I was playing in different areas of the aviation sector. Joined it uh, just in 2006 and kind of unexpected, to be honest, because that was the end of a nine month period for me, in which I came to London simply work as a waiter and, you know, learn English because I thought that would be useful. And somehow that period ended up being doing an interview with EasyJet and end up uh, working for them in their pricing department. Uh, one of the things that I still remember very vividly is the first day that I opened one of their tables, core tables in the, in the main data warehouse with uh, literally millions of rows. This was 2006. And, uh, just to give you a bit of a taste, how we were accessing those tables was on access databases, right? And when I opened that thing and, and I didn't do a um, select top 1000 usual that, yeah. uh, and that stuff, and then <laughs> the table started to pour and I was thinking, oh my God. From my training in economics, I, I remember that to do a for good forecast, you need at least kind of 30, 40 data points because think about, you know, GDP figures, think about, you know, uh, when something is statistically significant and, you know, power measures and things like that. 
And suddenly seeing those many data points, and I mean, plenty of data, it really called my attention because it didn't really match with what was happening on a day-to-day basis. So we had a lot of data, but we didn't really seem to do anything with it. And that was something that, you know, I was quite quite impressed about. Then I started to understand there were a mix of, well, the tools, how it's not just basically ideas of what you want to do with it, but how you manipulate that data. It was at the time that I became uh, not just familiar uh, with SQL, but, but proficient. And, and I love, uh, I remember that was a, a love at uh, first sight or first line, I guess, when I call love that thing. Love at first sight <laughs> yeah, at, yeah. At, the, at, the, at the data. Yeah, at the data okay. and the SQL and manipulating data. And I was just basically finding excuses to do anything and, and that stuff. But yeah, that, that was 2006. And then it was just basically my curiosity about how to crack the problem of letting data speak by itself, I guess. Uh, and uh, reading quite a lot on on the on I do love books and and, and read about science and and uh, technology and things like that. And I remember in two thousand and eight, uh, I read the Singularity is near from Ray Kurzweil, uh, which is leading in Google all the efforts on all futuristic stuff. Let's call it. And uh, all this is a book that really talks about you know very long periods uh, of time. It it as well you know was published in two thousand and five, and and it was talking about what were happening in the 2010, 2020, some of the things, you know, and he made quite bold predictions in there. Some of those, you know, you look at them and he perhaps was a bit bold, but in many, of, many of those seemed to me back then that were pretty obvious. And he was pointing about genomics and the, the, the revolution that would come from it in, in the 2020. He was talking about, uh, as well about the data revolution, about robotics and things like that. And and I remember the first explanation that in, uh, he made in that book about how a neural network work. And I took that thing and I built one in a, with a bit of getting other papers in the internet. And I built one in an Excel spreadsheet with all the different cycles uh, per line. So basically forward and backward pass. And I just, as well, I was fascinated by the whole thing, how that was the, the key for machine learning was the key to, to let data speak by itself. And uh, yeah, out of it, my, I did my MSc in data mining, was called back then. A lot of successful implementations on the algorithmic side of ECJet that gave the, the company many millions and um, a better pricing at the end of the day. And then uh, I started to understand that the issues weren't about having the right algorithm because the power was there, but it was more about all the change aspects that, that you need to bring in when when you bring data into the conversation or when you bring automation, which feels scary and, and not right for many people. And that is why I started to be more interested about those aspects and, uh, and organizational uh, and strategic themes. And that's why I did my MBA in, in here in uh, Cranfield. You talk about doing your, your master's, your MSc, and you built this neural net to really help EasyJet optimize the margins. And I, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to see a theme with some leading CDOs. I have to introduce you to Gustavo, who you also have heard on the podcast, yeah. who he, uh, he, during his master's, really came up with a model why Sam's Clubs now has gas stations. And so Ooh. he's a graduate student. So here you are, a graduate student, and you're proposing to this airline 
yeah. really millions of dollars or pounds, I should say. Yeah. What is it that encouraged you to do this? The bravery, the visionary aspect? Well, people couldn't believe what I, I remember first time that I talked to my manager, look, there's this thing called artificial neural networks. And, you know, I build this kind of proto model here on Excel spreadsheet. And I think that, you know, we can code this thing in a proper way. And he couldn't believe, he was looking at me like if I was, you know, coming from a different planet. <laughs> Outer space. Yeah, yes, it's yes. like, what are you yeah, talking I about, right? Yeah, so right. This, is, this is the real world. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, but, but look, the, the proposition for me was, you know, in my head, it was super clear and super compelling. Whilst I was doing the, this was at the same time I was doing the master, right? And, uh, and he couldn't, uh, even at my master, when I was uh, talking with my project supervisor, he couldn't really see the value of it. And, and the project was basically easy yet at that time, they have a role that was pricing manager, pricing manager, revenue manager. These people look at the screen, whatever is happening with a particular flight, and uh, they consume all the information about sales, what time of the year it is, and um, the, the market it, it is operating, how many frequencies, the price that it is, what happened with that price, and make a call. Yeah. Shall, I, shall I leave it as it is? Shall I increase it? Shall I decrease it? So for me, it's a, it was a kind of a, a perfect scenario of a, for a machine learning algorithm. So I collect all that data, which back then it took me like six months or something like that for, I don't know, uh, 10,000, 15,000 records. I don't remember right now, but it was tiny compared with today's standards of all the decisions that these people did and managed to kind of replicate their behavior with a high 90s accuracy. So the day that we switch on this thing, we immediately pick up more than 5,000 flights that were not in an optimal price point, more than 5,000 flights. And back then, we were probably operating 300,000 flights. And we let them there, everything was fine. And then the following uh, week, because we're kind of, you know, we did that run, then we kind of had to do a lot of follow-up and that stuff. Uh, it was, we didn't have the tools that, that we have today. And then after the second week, another, yeah, 7,000, 8,000. We started to kind of let the network to kind of, because we had a few, you know, controls in place to make sure that, that we didn't overdo it. Uh, and and it, it just became something that ended up running every 20 minutes in the ECGET revenue management system and was able to do the job of a human 1,000 times. It was, it was able to do the job of 1,000 humans. 1,000 humans. Yeah, and roughly. this is... The 2006, 2007 timeframe or what year? Yeah. Well, this was, this came live in 2010. I believe 2010. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it, that was impressive from company perspective. It was like, whoa, what just happened here? Right. Suddenly the rollout took all that year, all the 2010, right. But, um, uh, and in aviation, you have three, you know, you load your flights at 300 days before departure and you need to wait quite a lot to see the actual results. But in 2011, 2012, it was pretty obvious that this was something mind blowing, yeah. And uh, nothing, nothing ever seen on in in the you know aviation industry and, and in revenue management field. So it was a big success, and um, yeah, it gave a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you get any of it? To <laughs> did, be honest, oh, I was going to say, can we ask that? Did, what did the data guy get? Um, <laughs> I didn't get any of it, but yeah. But but I think it's clear. Uh, so even in the financial crisis, EasyJet made money. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you see, at, uh, at the numbers of EasyJet, I was working on other algorithms uh, throughout that period. We were in, implementing, you know, uh, other stuff uh, that is not really seen by the customer. But, yeah, you see that EasyJet, 
didn't didn't make a loss, you know, for many many yeah. years. This this is going to be the first time, but it's completely out of of, uh, of of what they can do. On top of that, I think that in 2010 was the the volcano in Iceland. Yes. Yeah. So there was another yeah. shutdown, and still we cannot, yeah. you know, make a profit. Yeah. I, I have to say this is not only because the pricing algorithms. Obviously, everybody was working very very hard, <laughs> but uh, definitely we we kind of provide our help to it. Yes, yes, yeah. uh, we we did. So, so so given that you've been in in the let's say data space for you know. 20 years, 15 years, I've been in it for 25. For some people that are new, here we are in a really stressful economic crisis. Do you believe data will help organizations navigate through this better, faster? It definitely will. Some people is asking about, okay, so how can we make better forecasts, right? In the middle of this uncertainty and, and, and that stuff. And, and I don't think that this is a black swan event. And it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to kind of have a forecast that would be able to predict this thing. If somebody has one, please let me know because we're going to be billionaires. <laughs> and uh, yeah. forecast by definition, you know, they learn on, uh, on the on the on the patterns that happened in the past, and then you know you try to kind of predict the future, right? You you, you go through these, you know, um, you know the analytical capabilities that Garner put in place many years ago on being descriptive, diagnostic, predictive. So on that third one is where the forecast is working on. And when after you know the past, you understand it, you, 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 you try to predict it and then you try to kind of correct if you're not happy with it. Uh, so it's data cannot make magic, right? And I think that this is where the human touch comes in, in, in place. I was talking the other day in a, in a webinar that IATA organized. And obviously this was for a lot of airlines and everybody was asking about how to do their forecast in a better way now that they are all in this, means, in this situation. I think that when we, in the, at the same time, when normal things happen and we are talking about data, be able to kind of do a lot of stuff that humans do today, right? It is true as well that humans cannot be completely out of the loop because it's now time when humans need to kind of jump in and basically take whatever models we have, which may be working very well or, or, or not at all, and be able to have that expertise and being able to apply them or not when it's necessary. Advocate of Demis Hassabi's uh, take on, on, on this on human plus AI are much, you know, much, much better than uh, AI alone. Definitely. We have the imagination. We exactly. have the imagination. And um, yeah. Uh, so, so a couple things then that I want to come back to. One, you said here, here you are, this new idea with the pricing and you're, supervisor at EasyJet didn't get it. You had the vision. And I think you were saying, really, your professor in the master's yeah. program didn't get it. So if you take a data leader today, how did you convince people, no, this is real. It, you're not from a different planet. Yeah. This is possible. How, how would you advise a CDO to convince a business person, or maybe the business person has the idea, but they're trying to get the data people and the IT people to buy into it. How did yeah. you convince these people, this is real, this is possible, and we have to do this? Yeah, yeah. So in, in the particular uh, case of this example, it was really a product I could carry on my own. And with a really, you know, just basically, you know, for a long period, but I could do on my own because nobody would really put any, any coin on it. I think that today, data has already passed through that, had passed that, that, that threshold in which people, you know, no longer really wonder about what is the value of it, right? We have seen enough weird magic happening because of data that now we start to kind of understand it. 
That doesn't mean that organizations are you know, embracing it. There's still a lot of organizations that they don't know how that could work for them. Because, you know, it may be very hard to kind of visualize and they are the business experts. I think that for those professionals that are in this situation, the best way still to jump on it today is, is um, have a, a specific projects that try to tackle small, small challenges that are really book scenarios on, on, uh, of supervised learning, uh, easy, easy projects to tackle in which you don't have a lot of dependencies. I always say that what we build at the end of the day, any data professional, what you build is a data product. And of all the many definitions that you have about a data product, I prefer to stay with the one that says that it's something that solves a problem through the use of data. So if we take that definition as a data product, we are talking about things that, that could be from data pipes, traditional ETLs and stuff like that, to algorithms, to a dashboard, to uh, just uh, ad hoc insight or, uh, you know, a, a very clear or the, or what you would see, uh, with a clever, very clever website, you know, promoting better restaurants or, or, uh, or, um, to our customers. So uh, any data product has three components in my head or three things you need to kind of get right, uh, for it to, to succeed. One is the access. There's many companies that are still fighting with, with, uh, data silos. So if you're going to try to kind of build something, make sure that that is not going to be a hard one. You're not going to be chasing people about data. That when you put this in life, you're not going to be uh, you're, you're not going to be having issues with pumping the data on a day-to-day basis. Is the infrastructure the correct one? Do you have the right tools? Is the problem they are trying to solve too big for the tools that you have today? So that's what I kind of see on the access side. Then uh, the model, which is where in my head quite a lot of the value is really created, is where you have your data scientists, your analysts, your expert that comes there with the code. It tortures the data long enough so it can tell you exactly what is hidden in there. And uh, if you if you have the right level of skills uh, and, and and talent and passionate people about data, you, you usually succeed through that one, right? And then the third uh, bit, which in my opinion is the one where most of the people fail when they fail, is the, the last mile, the delivery. Because sometimes we forget that, you know, the product that we build needs to live in the organization we are in, and you need to be adaptable to that. In, when I built in 2010 this, this uh, neural network, I didn't really, definitely didn't have this kind of uh, framework in my head. But to me, it was very, very clear that I had to kind of tick the, all these boxes for it to succeed, because I wanted to, to see this thing implemented on a day-to-day basis, not something that you struggle to, to just execute once every week. It had to be scalable at the end of the day. When you focus on this last last mile or delivery bit, in some cases is well, you have some insights, but you know how you serve those ones. Well, in some cases you may be doing that through a dashboard, right? And, and there could be a data product about that that just provides insights, right? In other cases, will be okay. I need to kind of make a change on a price. Okay, how are you going to be doing that? How are you going to be delivering that insight? Your neural network is able to kind of predict that this is the price that you should be putting. How are you going to be injecting that in your uh, pricing engine? Is it, can it be done, um, or uh, or uh, you have a fantastic recommendation for a customer? Okay, what are the, the the things that need to happen on the website for you to kind of pick up that signal? And in many cases, what happens is that organizations cannot give this first step because they struggle with that last mile, the, the delivery bit. The last um, mile, yeah. yeah. So that that's a lot in there, Alberto. So so let's go one by one. You have yeah. the access, the silos of data. 
yeah. and, and the technology, the right tools. So what's your preference? Data lake, data warehouse, multiple? What's your preference? What's state of the art today? Yeah, um, I data lakes are definitely really fun because they really help you to not have data silos anymore. However, data needs to be a structure, right? And you still need your, your data models that are reliable, easy to consume. So, you know, I'm still having faith in all data warehouse technology and approach. So I think that is kind of a space for both, to be honest. In my head, in some cases, you will have to use, uh, you know, more raw data and, and where uh, the data lake approach, because it's just basically go and find it. Yeah. Uh, but in other cases, when, uh, when, um, uh, for certain data models that are core to the business, uh, that are basically feeding 90% of your dashboards or, uh, or uh, helping you to solve 90% of your problems, you definitely need uh, some stable um, uh, you know, data warehouse holding those ones. In terms of tools, cloud-based, I guess that is what, what every, everything cloud. is. You know, okay. yeah, cloud, okay. Not on-premises? You're not done on with on-premises? I don't really mind, really. I, I kind of fairly agnostic to it, but um, you know, I, I kind of see everybody moving into that direction. I, I don't really care. Uh, in terms of languages, I code in Python and SQL, and that is kind of my preference. I used to code in R, but I, you know, I don't think that is really fit for purpose. Uh, sorry for, for those ones. That <laughs> it's been, open source. Okay. It's okay. It's open source. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think that the future already, you know, the is already pretty clear. It's going to be an SQL Python world in my at least the next few years. That, yeah, that, that's what I would encourage really anybody to go for. Uh, in terms of models, I think that we're still innovating quite a lot on this area. Yeah, so the so the data lake being fun and the data warehouse, my my friends at Gartner would call it the logical data warehouse. You, yeah, you actually need exactly. both. Yeah, you need yeah. both. Yeah, so yeah. there, there they agree. Um, and then you talked about the data scientists, the skills. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know in Europe it varies by country. Yeah. You know, UK doing better graduating these people, bringing the expertise to the market. Germany, a little bit better. Spain, tighter, uh, harder to find these people. So how do we solve the talent gap? And you said passion. I think the passion is there. There's Mm -hmm. passionate people. But one COO recently said to me, we don't have a talent gap. We have an imagination gap. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, it's true. It's true that in UK is definitely easier. Um, in, in London, there's no shortage of data scientists. I think that, that is still a lot of competition for them because there's a lot of companies here. But, but yeah, is a lack of imagination? I'm not sure. I think that what happened in, in um, what I see, I, I cannot tell you about Germany, but I can tell you about Spain. And, and, and um, I, I have been quite a few years outside Spain, but uh, for, for what I hear when I speak with friends and that stuff, I think that that there is a less open mind to to understand what data can do for your business um, in in, uh, in in certain European countries, right? Is it a fear? Do you think that holds them back, or just not realizing the art of the possible? I don't think. I think that is the the, the second one. I think that they are not realizing about what is the art of the possible. I don't think that is fear. So do, is this a matter of, are you looking more to universities to fix this? Or is it about upskilling the current workforce and inspiring? Well, we have many data scientists. When I was in CJ, the vast majority of my data scientists didn't come from UK, 80%, 90%. And, uh, and here in Justit as well, there's a significant chunk of those that are not coming from UK. Where do they come from? 
So, well, we, we have a, a data science team sitting in, uh, in Winnipeg, for example, right? So uh, many of those are obviously Canadian, and then we have some Brazilian people. And uh, uh, those are the initiatives that I remember there. And then here in UK, we have people from Spain, from Germany, from Portugal, from Italy. You know, it's dangerous to quote them because I, I just, if you I use a nationality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but um, yeah, I, I don't think that is an issue with, with universities churning the, the, the right skills. They are churning that the right skill. I think that there is a gap in, in from people first to understand that they could be data scientists when they have their PhD finished or if the DNMSC in data is pretty clear, right? But but to many people to understand that to be a data scientist, you need to have a bit of a science mindset, be good at programming, and uh, be willing to kind of spend a lot of hours debugging and try to understand what the hell happened with the data. And, and if you are basically going to jump into this junior role, then yeah, that's what I would say. I think that is more on the company side, try to understand. My, in my experience, companies in Spain, for example, and, and I may not be allowed to kind of go back after this, don't have <laughs> we'll a clear, edit it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll edit well, it. It's fine, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, don't, don't have much of an idea about what data really means. And uh, I, I say that with, with a lot of sorry, you know, I, I feel a bit sad about it. But in general, I'm not saying that all the companies are in that situation. Com- companies in Spain uh, don't really understand what is the value. And that starts at the very top, right? Starts at the yeah. board. There's no first uh, data leaders uh, enough in those boards that are able to kind of explain to the company uh, what are the opportunities on the other side. Uh, but neither is the appetite of many of those companies to to jump into into these adventures, I guess. Yeah. So maybe instead, like they won't let you back. They'll say, "Please come back yeah. and paint <laughs> us, paint paint the picture for us, inspire yeah. us." This was part one of Cindy's interview. Continue on to part two in your podcast player, or click on the link in our show notes. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.